0: So my oldest son, Hollis, is about to turn 15 years old, and so we are doing all the things with all the driving. I know that many of you have done with your children in the past where we're teaching driving laws and how to drive and being terrified sitting in the passenger seat with him and all the things that a 15-year-old does and I'm always reminded whenever we're talking about traffic laws. I'm always I'm always drawn back to uh, 2009. Is when I just graduated seminary. We just we were in North Carolina. We moved uh, to a, a church in Morganton, North Carolina. It was the first church we were serving at. And part of us moving there, we were no longer students, and so we had to move our residency there permanently. And part of that was of the residency. Uh, Part, their law, whatever, was having our driver's license changed from, uh, at the time, Alabama to North Carolina. And I thought, okay, no big deal, we go to the place. And they say, oh yeah, you just have to retake the driver's test. And so April, you know, she gets the book and she starts studying. And I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. I mean, at this point in my life, I had been driving for 15 years Why do I have to take another test? This is ridiculous. Nonetheless, April starts studying, and so it comes time for us to actually take the driver's test, to have our our driver's license swapped over, and you guys know exactly what happened, right? April, of course, passes with flying colors, and Mr. Pride here fails it miserably. Like, I was like, okay, clearly I don't need to be driving, right? Either that or the laws are really different in Alabama, but nonetheless, I failed, Right, it's, it's really uh, traffic laws are one of these things that we tend to take for granted of. I was reminded, uh, reminded of that about three weeks ago. We were in El Salvador on the mission trip and I realized real quick like in El Salvador that they don't have traffic rules, they have traffic suggestions. <laughs> it's different. And we were, I mean, there's just cars weaving in and out of one another, and we're in these, this big van, and it's like the whole side of it's nothing but a window, and you're, you're so close to people, you could, if you, the glass wasn't there, you could literally touch the vehicle. And there's lots of fender benders, lots of horn honking, and, but my favorite, my favorite was we were driving up these mountains, and I'm looking out this window, not at a very sturdy, secure guardrail, Oh, no, 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 I'm looking out that window at my death because here's the thing, if this dude doesn't keep this van right here, there's nothing to catch us. We are going to tumble to the ground. And it reminded me once again that although I never really pay attention to things like guardrails on the side of the road here, I sure am thankful for them. I'm thankful for rules that are designed to keep me safe. And this morning, I, I want us to take that principle and apply it to God's commandments. You see, when God gives us a rule, when he tells us not to do something, he's not trying to hurt us. He's trying to help us. He's trying to keep us safe. And as, as Mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the seventh commandment listed in Deuteronomy five, which just simply says, "This morning, you shall not commit adultery." Nothing destroys a family faster than adultery. Now, I will be the first to tell you that I personally don't believe that the church—not not Hillcrest, but the capital C church—has traditionally done a great job at talking about healthy biblical sex. I don't know that we've done a great job of that in the past, but friends, make no mistake. God is not a killjoy. He's the one who invented sex and he desires for us to enjoy it as he designed it. But like everything else that God made, there's a balance to be applied to what God has given us. All gifts have limitations on them. For instance, God gave us the gift of water. You can't survive without it. But too much water causes you to drown. Or God gave us the gift of fire for warmth and, and for other purposes. But that same fire can burn and destroy So it is with the gift of sex, properly controlled and expressed within marriage. It's a great gift given for our enjoyment and our fulfillment. But outside of marriage, it is destructive and it is detrimental to your health as a human being, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. This is why Hebrews 13, 5 communicates it very clearly when it says, Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexual immoral. So please don't misunderstand. The Bible is very clear and very consistent on this issue. Any sex outside of the lawful union of a husband and a wife is wrong according to God and carries inevitable consequences. Now, we need to be really honest with one another today. Marriage can be one of the greatest blessings of your life. But marriage can also be a tough proposition sometimes. Someone once said that marriage is like undertaking a Lego project without the instructions. (laughs) This is why, this is why premarital counseling is so important for couples who are preparing for marriage. Shameless plug alert. April and I are actually leading a premarital counseling class on Sunday mornings beginning September 11th, so if you're interested, you can sign up online. (laughs) Shameless plug, Over. But it's really naive to think that you can merge two separate individual lives together and that it just magically will click because you love one another. No. We need to prepare ourselves, and we need to walk into this thing called marriage with eyes wide open on how to properly love and how to properly serve one another. Not just in the honeymoon phase, but throughout your life together. You see, not knowing how to navigate one another, coupled with with many not understanding God's plan for their marriage, is why so many marriages crash and burn. So what I want us to do for a few minutes, just before we dive in directly on adultery, let's just spend a few minutes talking about marriage, particularly God's plan for your marriage. Now, let me state the obvious here. Uh, Not everyone listening to me this morning is married. I understand that. Uh, Some of you are single, some of you have not reached the age or the phase of life yet for marriage, but listen, that's okay. Because the things that we're gonna be talking about this morning are principles that you should desire and have in place when looking for a spouse. Because listen, you always want to be proactive on your stances and on your convictions, not reactive. So just because we're talking about marriage doesn't mean that you just get to take a 30 minute nap real quick. No, lean in, take notes. All right, what is God's plan for your marriage? Well. It's really simple and it's outlined in a very familiar verse of scripture found in Genesis 2. So you can turn with me in Genesis 2 if you want. It's gonna be on the screen. We're just gonna read a couple verses there. Uh, Starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then jump down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now I want you to notice from verse 24 that God's plan for your marriage involves three important things. The first one is this, the priority of your spouse. The priority of your spouse. The Bible says that a man and likewise a woman will leave his father and mother. Relationships are supposed to change when you get married. You are to leave your father and your mother. In other words, you leave their charge and you come out from under their God-giving authority over you. That's the symbolism of a a bride being given away publicly in a wedding ceremony. It symbolizes the leaving of the child. And outside of your relationship with Jesus, no relationship should have a greater, higher priority than does the relationship you have with your spouse. Listen, listen, not even the relationship with your children. My sons, they know that I love them with my whole heart. I consistently tell them and I show them that truth, but they also know that they are, show, that they are, that they are holding a forever secure spot at number two because number one's reserved for, for mama. Number one's reserved for her. You know, they're gonna bail out on us in a few years, but that's my ride or die. She's number one, Right? Another thing Genesis 24 uh, shows us regarding God's plan for marriage is it's a permanent relationship. So you make your spouse a priority, but also it's a permanent relationship. We see this when it says that you should be united to his wife, or your version may say hold fast to his wife. So there is to be a leaving and a cleaving. The Hebrew word here gives the idea of joining or gluing two things together. It's a bond that's not to be broken. Jesus himself affirmed this in the tenth chapter of, of Mark's gospel when in response to a question on divorce, he quotes Genesis 2.24 and then adds his own commentary when he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, God intends for marriage to be a permanent affair. Not as long as you both shall love, but as long as you both shall Live. That is why, with couples that we counsel, we tell them that the word divorce should never come out of their mouth when referencing their own marriage. And make no mistake, marriage is hard work, and all marriages have problems. There's not a marriage in this room that doesn't have problems, but you got to get rid of the idea that divorce is a possibility. And why is that? It's because God's plan for your marriage is for it to be permanent. And if divorce is an option, then you don't view that relationship as permanent. So God's plan for your marriage involves the priority of your spouse. It involves a permanent relationship. And finally, it involves a powerful unity. The closing portion of Genesis 2, says, And they will become one flesh. Jesus, again, echoes this truth in Mark 10, where he says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But the two really are one. And this means so much more than sentiment. It means They are one flesh. God takes two people and he makes them one. So God's plan for your marriage is to be a relational priority and a permanent union and a powerful, exclusive oneness. And herein lies the problem with adultery. Because to adulterate means to make impure. Committing the act of adultery renders impure something that God values highly. Now, most, hopefully all, of us in this room or those watching online would say that you are not currently committing the act of adultery, which is a great thing, by the way, But then we get to the Sermon on the Mount where where Jesus is essentially saying, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to raise the bar for my followers. And then in a section of this sermon, he says these words in Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. He, He says, you have heard that it was said, go into hell. Yikes. Okay, so suddenly, this went from something that hopefully nobody is struggling with to something that probably everyone here has struggles with at some point. You see, even if a man or woman Simply indulges in lustful thoughts, then he or she is committing adultery. Even if no extramarital physical contact ever takes place, and this explanation by Jesus, it it uh, it avoids all of the nuances. Like, well, how far is too far with someone that's not your spouse? And it avoids the need to define what sex really is because lust, not sex, is the threshold of adultery. You see, Jesus is once again teaching us that there is a deeper obedience to be sought, one that surpasses simply not sleeping with someone we are not married to. He goes straight to the root of the problem and he calls it, says it's lust. And as a result... This seventh commandment speaks to more than just those of us who are married. It speaks to all of us who are tempted to lust. You see, lust saturates our media. It it sells us this bent version of, of human flourishing that is based on corrupting the good gifts of sex and sexuality. So, so how do we protect ourselves living in a world that places sex, that places lust, that, that places impurities before us constantly when we know it's destroying homes and families every single day? What do we do? Well, well that's the fourth point we're going to talk about this morning. We must put up guardrails we gotta put up some guardrails, and just like we talked about earlier, guardrails are designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. They, they minimize damage by keeping us in the safety zone. Likewise, we would we'd be very wise to place some of these safety measures in our own lives that keeps us from straying into dangerous or off-limit areas. And in order to do this, I believe it would be wise for us to address Two common myths regarding sex that is constantly put in our face through TV, through movies, through music, through social media. It's it's constant. And, and, And these myths, they plant seeds of lust, just one single seed at a time. And before we know it, we're trapped. And the dangerous and terrifying thing about this, friends, is that we have been so inundated with it, with everything that's put in front of us. We have been so inundated with these myths that we grow numb to the damage they are doing to our minds and just as importantly, our hearts. And the first myth that we are, we are, we are sold this all the time is that sex is just Physical. This is a, a, just a biological urge like any other urge. In other words, sex is kinda like food. If you get hungry, you eat. People think, well, what's the big deal if we just have a little fun? I mean, what, what's wrong with just a little bit of flirting? What's the harm in that? But see, here's the thing, most everybody, even though they may go along with this myth, deep down, they know it's not true. They know it's not true. I mean, just, just ask yourself, why is it? Why is it that many people's greatest regrets in life are sexual? Why is that? If, if sex is just physical, then why is it when a child is sexually abused, when they are adult and they finally connect the dots, it's so difficult to shake off. It's not, it's not just an authority figure letting them down. No, it's deeper than that. If sex is just physical, why is adultery so hard to get over? If if sex is just physical, why is rape so much more psychologically damaging than any other physical violence? If if sex is just physical, none of those things will be true. But here's the thing, we know that sex is not just physical. Because sex, which is supposed to be the ultimate expression of the marriage relationship, is not just a physical act, it's a soul act. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul takes this deep soul dimension of sex and he expands on it. Now, it's, it's, it's cool to read this now because Paul wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago, but it's like he's talking to the people today. And, and just for context, when, when Paul's writing this, he's writing it to the, the Corinth where the church uh, that Paul's writing to was located. And this was a highly sexualized society. The most, listen to this, the most famous temple was to the goddess Aphrodite who was the sex goddess and you worshiped her by having sex with her prostitutes. Many people in Corinth viewed sex like it's viewed today as as simply the fulfillment of some biological urge and in verse 13 of chapter six, uh, Paul says this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Our bodies he says, are are so much more than mere biological machines. Like, Like Jesus pointed out in Matthew 19, our bodies are vehicles for our souls. Our souls were created in the image of God. Souls created to know God and to know others like God knows them. So herein lies one of the major issues of lust. It's an act of contempt it reduces someone to a source of sexual gratification and nothing more. We don't see the other person as someone made in the image of God. We see them as something to devour. We don't see them as people worthy of respect and honor. We see them as something that's pleasing to our eyes. Friends, this is Eve gazing at the forbidden fruit all over again. What Jesus identifies as the root of adultery is the very thing that lies at the root of every adulterated act. The lust of the eyes is a, distor- is a disordered desire, one, one that chooses to fix its gaze and its yearning and its grasp on what God has forbidden So the guardrail you need to put up in your life sits at the very gate that allows lust to enter, and that is on your eyes. In in our home, this is what it looks like. And we don't have it all figured out, but this is a rule that we have. We don't watch rated R movies. That's That's just a thing we don't do. And, and a lot of times, we really don't watch too many that are pg 13 And if there's something sexual in nature, we turn it off. Our boys know it. a matter of fact, it's got to the point now, if they see it, they'll cut it off before we do. And that, that's, that's just a guardrail I've put in place for myself as a father, but it's a guardrail we have, we have in place for our family. It has not always been that way in my life. I, I was not raised that way. But that is a guardrail we have for our family. Another guardrail that I personally utilize, utilize is on social media. It is, it is a, I have a very well-known policy that I have shared with parents and students. If a female posts a picture of herself in a swimsuit or any other clothing that shows a lot of skin, I immediately mute them. I immediately mute them. And it's not anything personal. I, I, it, I'm just not going to do that. And why is that? Well, first... I respect them as a female. First of all, I respect them as someone's daughter. I respect them as some man's future spouse. I respect them as someone made in the image of God. But more importantly, I respect my bride. And she needs to know with full confidence that my eyes are fixated on Jesus and her. That's it. She owns every single password on every single device I own. I'm currently reading a book entitled uh, the, Pre- the, the Pastor and the Presidents. And it's, it's taking a look at the life of Billy Graham and his involvement with, with presidents throughout his life and on more than one occasion, it mentions his policy on never being alone with a woman outside of his wife. There's no, no dinners, there's no unsupervised meetings, there's, there's nothing, and, and why did he do that? Because he had a guardrail up to protect himself and to protect his marriage. See, friends, sex is not just physical. But there's another myth that we're sold that's just as dangerous and it's that sex can be casual. If sex is just physical, then it can be casual. It's not that serious. Continue on with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6, though. Listen to his response to this in verse 16. He says, And do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. When you, when you have sex, you become one body with the person you have sex with, and it's impossible to have sex and this not happen on some level. Notice that Paul's illustration for this immorality is sex with a prostitute, which is the cheapest kind of sex imaginable. It's with a stranger. It it involves no commitment. You'll likely never see each other ever again, which then leads Paul to say this in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, immoral person sins against his own body. You see, other sins primarily hurt others, but Paul says sexual sins destroy you from the inside. And knowing this, that we we live in a culture that sells us the myth of sex just being casual and recognizing that sexual immorality eats away on us from the inside, then we have to address the oftentimes silent marriage killer, pornography. Did you know that porn traffic on the internet every day is more than the traffic of Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined? Did you know that the porn industry in our country takes in more money than Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL combined? Over 30% of Internet traffic is pornography. The word sex is the number one word searched for on the Internet. And... Like other forms of sexual immorality, pornography trains your mind to start looking at the opposite sex as a commodity. They aren't someone made in the image of God. And when you gaze at pornography, you are looking at an image of a man or a woman whose body you just want to use. And as a result, it trains your mind to see the opposite sex in a certain way with no recognition that they have a soul. And then your mind starts to see the real women and the real men in your life as objects. You say, no, 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 I can keep it separate. That's where you're wrong. Because it rewires your brain. You know, they said, they say in the lead up to World War II, that the way that many Germans got comfortable with committing the worst atrocities against Jews was by hearing them talked about for years as subhuman. And so they became okay with the pain and the suffering of the Jews. They weren't monsters, at least not at first. They just started thinking of the Jews in a certain way. You know, we see this played out in 2 Samuel when the author tells a story about David and Bathsheba. He sets up an interesting contrast. Whenever whenever he talks about her, whenever the author talks about Bathsheba, he talks about her as someone's wife, as someone's daughter, as someone's mother. He's doing that to help us identify Bathsheba as a person with relationships, a person who is loved by many for reasons apart from her physical beauty. But that's not how David saw her. He saw her as an object of his desire and that led to one of the worst kinds of sin by David because porn rewires your brain to think of sex as just the satisfaction of an urge and when you train listen when you train your mind that way later when you get married your ability to engage in sex like God designed it as a fusion of souls offering themselves to each other in self-giving love, it is significantly diminished. Andy Stanley says that every time you look at porn, you rewire your soul to believe three things. A real body isn't good enough, only one body isn't good enough, and your spouse's body isn't good enough. You see, many people Believe that they can just keep pornography tucked away in a little corner of your life and you could put it away whenever you get married or whenever you feel like it. But that's not how our brain, not to mention your soul, works. That's like saying, hey, I have a fire in my house, but it's just over here in the closets. It's not a big deal. And listen, if you're here this morning and you and you have a problem in this area, you need a guardrail. One one guardrail we use here at the church. It's, it's a company you've probably heard of. It, it's called Covenant Eyes. It, it is, and, and basically it'll cost you seventeen dollars a month. And essentially it provides a filter on your web browser. And in any time something questionable is, is visited, it sends a report to someone that you have authorized to hold you accountable. Seventeen dollars a month to save your marriage—that's a good deal. But this also leads to another guardrail. Like you need biblical community. Like you need to be surrounding yourself with men and women who love you, who will fight alongside of you as you fight alongside of them. Because listen to me, nobody in this room is perfect. Every single one of us has struggles. Every one of us. But let me tell you something. Hear this clearly. Isolation will always lead to your defeat. Every time. The mindset of I can handle it on my own. I'm the only one who struggles with this. I don't want to be embarrassed. Satan's won the battle. Got you by yourself. We tell couples all the time when well, we're counseling them, like premarital counseling, you, you need for your first year marriage. One of the things that you have to do before uh, we sign off on this is you've got to have a couple that you agree to meet with once a month. And you're going to give us five questions that you're going to give them to ask you every month. Why is that? Because the same principle is true in marriage. If he can pull your marriage off and just silo you over here, it's like, y'all are the only couple that's got this mess going on. He's won. You're defeated. And listen, I am fully aware that this has not been the easiest message to hear this morning. And be, be assured, it definitely has not been the easiest message I've ever written. But friends, we've got to fight back. We've got to fight back. Fight for your wife. Fight for your husband. Fight for your children. Don't roll over and just think, this is how I am. Satan's real tricky. See, he's succeeded in convincing believers that lust is just something to be managed instead of something to be slain. But God intends for us to strike it down. And how do I know this? Because listen to this verse that Paul writes in Colossians 3:5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death sexual immorality. Now, I, I know, I know at this point, some of you are feeling overwhelmed because, statistically speaking, you have made some of these mistakes. And I want to remind you of something this morning as we get ready to close. You are not finished. You're not finished. The demon of lust is big and it's daunting and it's scary. But our God is bigger. This is why he sent Jesus, because he knew we couldn't do this on our own. So yes, put up guardrails in your life. And obviously, if if you are in this room or if you're watching this right now and you're in an adulterous relationship, let me just say this, end it, like right now. You got to get out of that. Like you you acknowledge the sin, you end the relationship immediately, and you avoid contact with that person. Like you can't be friends with them any longer. You gotta cut them off. But for everyone else in this room that's tempted to lust, let me encourage you with our final point this morning. Return to God's plan. Return to God's plan. You see, there's a danger in hearing a message like this and walking away feeling defeated. There's a danger of, of feeling too far gone. There's, there's a danger of feeling like you don't deserve another chance. I read it like this. I read this earlier this week. As a matter of fact, if you don't think you deserve another chance from God, you need to remember you didn't deserve the first chance either. There you are know, a lot of people that, that cling to John 3.16 as like their favorite verse, and, and, and rightfully so. It's an amazing verse. One of my favorite Bible verses in, the whole, in all of Scripture follows that one up where it says this, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And listen, if you, hear, if you can hear my voice this morning, you listen to these words. You are not condemned. You are not condemned. If you seek forgiveness, the Bible is very clear that he is faithful and just to forgive those sins. I love the picture Isaiah 61 10 gives us. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Friends, he makes us beautiful. Even comparing us to a bride on her wedding day. You know, I have a, the privilege of performing many weddings and it's a really cool moment. You guys know, you've seen it when the, when the groom sees his bride for the first time. And there, there's, there's a sense of pride there, right? And there's genuine surprise in his voice and, and on his face and he sees the beauty for the first time on their wedding day. And if this scripture in Isaiah is true, then let this truth sink in. God uses that picture to describe how attractive we are to him. He has made us that beautiful through Jesus. See, Jesus took away all of our ugliness and exchanged it for beauty. For those parents that are in the room today, I want you to think back to when your child took their first steps. They would take a few steps and they would inevitably fall. In that moment, Did you just throw your hands up and walk away and be like, they're never gonna get it. They're the worst. No. What did you do? You went over and you picked them back up and you encouraged the steps. Just keep going. Just keep going. You're gonna get it. You're gonna get it. And they're gonna fall. And you're gonna pick them back up. And you're gonna say, come on, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And they're gonna fall and you're gonna pick them back up. And you can do it, and you can do it, and eventually they get there, and they run, and they, drive, they run all over the place, right? But why did you respond that way? why did you respond that way? You responded that way because that's your child, and you love them, and you know they're gonna fall sometimes, but it's not about falling. It's about getting up and trying again. And the parallel, friends, it's easy for us to see. You are his children. And you may be here this morning and you feel like you have fallen. You need to know that your heavenly father hasn't left you. He's right there. You're hearing these words this morning because he's ready to pick you back up. And so the question then is this. Are you going to stay down or are you going to get up and practice taking more steps?